Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. It's been a long wait for series four, and I'm pleased to tell you it is coming soon. In early 2022, we'll have the final series of this podcast and some excellent stories to share with you. We have listeners in about 60 odd countries, so not all of our listeners will be celebrating Christmas, but most will be aware that it's happening. This episode is a special seasonal edition to kick it all off, and I hope you enjoy a little behind-the-scenes look at what it takes to produce that iconic festive decoration, the Christmas tree. Transcripts of this episode and all our podcasts are available at pbsinternational.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Plant Breeding Stories, Professor Chal Landgren. This is a seasonally themed episode, and I'm delighted to have you with us today. Would you like to start by telling us about your role? My position at Oregon State University is Extension Christmas Tree Specialist. So my role is research and extension projects that relate to Christmas trees, and those tend to be genetics, tree identification and breeding, cultural practices revolving around shearing and top work and planting trees. And most recently, we've been doing some work on on trying to get trees to survive on our dry summers with heat domes and no rain and hot days all through the summer. So that's been a focus of research in the last three years. Because mm-hmm. a, a Christmas tree is not just for Christmas. We need it. We need it healthy all year round. Yeah, most people <laughs> wonder what I do after December. You know, if I just start watching television or go into hibernation and then wake up in ten months. But it's a year-round position. There's a few states in the U.S. that have similar positions. Oregon happens to be the state in the U.S. that has the largest Christmas tree harvest. Um, but there are people in, in uh, North Carolina, Michigan, and Washington State, and Pennsylvania that do Christmas tree work as well. Mm-hmm. I have lots and lots of questions about Christmas trees, so we'll get into that in a moment. But I would like to know, how did you come to be in this role? So maybe could you start the story right back at the beginning with how did you get interested in plants? You know, Did you grow up in a rural area or, or was there somebody influential? Just just tell me a bit about how did you how did you even get turned towards plants in the first place? I know I grew up in a suburban suburban San Francisco in the East Bay, and um, I think one of my and I had no interest in plants. Um, so I think the first inkling that there was something exciting there was probably just uh, working with the scouts and and going outdoors and doing a lot of hiking and that kind of stuff. Um, so outdoors was interesting. And then we would pick up a Christmas tree as a family 
from UC Berkeley. They had a genetics breeding test up in the Oakland Hills, and we'd go up there, and and I was fascinated by you know the difference between the plants, and they were selling sequoias for Christmas trees, and and there was tremendous differences between families. So I got interested there. You mentioned UC Berkeley had a genetics and breeding program. Was that specifically for Christmas trees? Because I, I, I hadn't really thought about Christmas tree breeding, but it sounds like you had, you were at least aware of that concept of doing plant breeding for Christmas trees fairly early on. I don't think it was specific for Christmas trees, but my assumption was that it was it was something that they had, and they realized they could make some money. <laughs> by selling Christmas trees to the public and getting the genetic information that they needed early. They actually did have, though, a particular clone that they were propagating. It had a special characteristic for Christmas trees. So they actually did sell that as, uh, you know, as a clone for growing Christmas trees. So were they like thinning and selling the ones that they were thinning? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that was exactly what they were doing and making a little money for the for probably the forestry club or something like that. That's very enterprising. I, I rather respect that. <laughs> <laughs> and circling back from that clarification, what did you go on to study and where? I did my undergraduate work at UC Davis, and probably the only subjects that I was kind of drawn to was botany and plant studies. So then I got interested in forestry when we had a visiting professors came up and gave some Talks at UC Davis, and uh, I transferred to Berkeley in forestry and um, worked most of my initial career as a forester, kind of working with small woodland owners. And, and then my wife went back to graduate school, and I was bored and needing something to do. So we bought seven acres of property and wondering what we could do with it. And Christmas trees was the best solution we came up with. So in 19... 81, we planted seven acres of Christmas trees, and I've been interested in Christmas trees ever since that initial planting. Oh, right. So that's 40 years in the Christmas tree market now. So it's fair to say you're an expert. Can you give me a bit of an overview of that market? How many trees are harvested and where are they sold and so on? The Oregon market, um, we harvest about three and a half million trees a year, and our biggest market is California. Um, but trees go into all of the Southwest states and really across the country. Our biggest export market is into Mexico, but we also are shipping trees into most of the Far East in refrigerated ships and containers and airplanes. We've been as large as 6 million trees a year in, in harvest in Oregon. The national market uh, is a little bit vague to describe how many trees are sold every year. It's probably somewhere around 27 million. And Oregon, North Carolina, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Washington state are the main contributors to, to that national market. But every state has probably some level of Christmas tree growing somewhere in it. So um, that's a rough overview of the, of the market. To get a sense of the scale, how many Christmas trees can be grown on an acre of land? There's about 1,400 trees per acre. So that would be well over 19,000 acres of Christmas tree plantations across the U.S. alone. That sounds good. You know, and that's if an entire acre gets harvested, you know, which is which is fairly rare. You know, there, it takes usually about three years to harvest 
an acre or a hectare, whatever land measurement we're using. The harvest cycle is about three years in length for any given piece of ground. Three isn't, does that mean the the trees are three years old or they've been in the ground and they were a few years old before they go into the ground? The trees when they start are usually about two years old. We'll plant a two-year-old seedling and then at least for noble fir, the cycle is about eight years. We'll probably get our first tree harvest on a given acre at year seven and that'll be the ones, the trees that are the fastest growing and the best looking. And then the main harvest will be in year eight. And then we'll kind of clean up that field in year nine. It'll, it'll vary by site and species and grower, but that's kind of the general rule for noble fir. Douglas fir grows a lot faster and it's our second most common species that we, that we grow in Oregon anyway. And it'll have about a five-year harvest cycle. It's less valuable per foot when growers come to sell it, but you can almost get two rotations of Douglas fir in the time it takes you to do one rotation of noble fir. But noble fir is probably 60% of our current market. It may change as we look at heat damage and summer droughts and things like that, but that's kind of currently, you know, noble fir is our, is 60 percent of our market, uh, Douglas fir, probably 30, and then 10 percent is divided between Nordman, Turkish, and Grand fir, and a couple other minor species. So if I were to ask a very um, generic question, this might be different by species. What makes a good Christmas tree? Like, What are you looking for when you're, when you're saying either this is going to be a good species or this specimen is a good specimen? In some way, that's a loaded question. It's like asking asking somebody what's a, a good looking spouse look like. So, <laughs> But the, the things that we look for in terms of breeding and growers are interested in would be reasonably fast growth. We look for upright branching and that helps to control the density of the tree or, or uh, improve the density of the tree. We look for a good color and we look for disease and insect resistance. And those are kind of the main characteristics that we're looking for. So our typical progeny test is we would we would do an evaluation based on height. Then we would look to see how many holes are in the tree in terms of holes that would big, be bigger than say a big softball. If there's one hole in a tree, that would be okay. If there's two on different sides, that would be a different grade. And if the color's poor, that would be a downgrade. So we have generally four different categories for grading trees. We have premium trees, which are very rare on a given acre, uh, on number one, on number two. Um, some growers have a have a grade that would be a utility, which would mean you, if, if the price was cheap enough, you wouldn't mind having it in your house, but uh, it's not as pretty as some of the other ones. And then then there'd be a call that would be one you just wouldn't want your next door neighbor to have in their home. So when you talk about having a hole in them, you know, I kind of get the idea that when you look at your Christmas tree, you don't want it to be lopsided or to be nice and bushy at the bottom and thin at the top, that kind of thing. But I I can see that some of those traits would be genetically determined. But in my head, I was thinking that if it had a a hole like that, that would just be a consequence of, I don't know, damage or insect activity or something like that. Is it genetic? Certainly there's a genetic component to that, you know, having, having those open gaps in a tree. They're just probably 
aren't sufficient branches and buds to cover the the tree in those areas. Having run a U-cut lot in our own farm, there are certainly people that come out to the farm and say, I want trees with holes in it because I can put in a big ornament or something. So it, it certainly, beauty is so much in the eye of the beholder, but in terms of grading trees, the density is something that growers are trying to make uniform from the base of the tree to the top. And that's reasonably hard to do with trees that grow slowly at first. So that means their bottom branches are going to be very bushy and full. And then it starts to grow excessively long on the as it matures. So at, after the tree gets to be about, um, you know, a meter and a half or five feet, the tree starts to grow fast. So the strategy that growers are using is try to control the height growth after the tree reaches, say, a meter, meter and a half, and try to even out that density of the tree by both shearing the sides of a tree and controlling the height growth. So that demands that there's enough internodal branches that it has the ability to fill. If there's not enough internodal branches and buds, those gaps will form all over the tree and, and be poorly kind of configured. And while we're talking about the basics of the Christmas tree market, can you tell me about how they're harvested? Because when we spoke previously, you told me something surprising about that. Some of the larger growers in Oregon are using helicopters, and that's done in probably two different ways. Probably the most common way growers are, are doing their helicopter harvesting is they'll, they'll have piles spread out through their fields of maybe 20 to 30 trees. And those piles will be wrapped with a polyester rope sling and then there'll be a person on the ground and obviously someone in the helicopter and the helicopter will come and drop a line down to this, the hooker say on the ground and they'll hook that pile up and there'll probably be two or sometimes three of these guys on the ground hooking the piles up to the helicopter. The helicopter will drop the piles sometimes into an area where they're starting to wrap the trees with string or that which called baling or they'll drop the trees directly into specially designed trucks that they'll then take the trucks to a central spot where the trees will be baled and wrapped and get ready for harvest. It seems like a very elaborate process to use helicopters. Is that because they're these are fairly remote sites often? Yeah, they're remote sites. And what it does for the growers is it means they don't have to have as many roads and roads are very expensive operations. And they're, they tend to be fairly hilly sites, although not always. But it means that a lot of the operation of, you know, for other things like spraying and fertilizing, etc., will be also done by helicopters um, rather than having a lot of roads. These trees can be heavy. A big noble fir can can weigh seventy pounds, mm-hmm. kilos. So it's it takes a lot of effort to move these things. So if you can get a mechanical assist with a helicopter and laborers are get, labor is getting more scarce all the time. And it tends to be the larger growers that will have access to, you know, to helicopter companies to contract with them for a long period of time. On our little farms, it's pretty much hiring people to haul the trees to a central spot. Then the grower will bring in a baler and then bale the trees up so that they're compressed and then take those with a trailer to a central loading spot and then 
load trucks. And most of the trucks are loaded with individual trees on an elevator going up and putting into the to the cargo van to load, say, 500 trees in a truck. It may take seven people two hours. So it's a, it's a very labor-intensive operation, and then they have to be unloaded at the distribution point at the you know, wherever the customers are. Like so many things in life, it seems like one of those things where if you don't think too hard about where it came from, you would never realize how much time and effort has gone into it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I know a little bit about Christmas trees and ignorant about a lot of things, but uh, I appreciate how much time it takes on trees. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. So let's move on to breeding and seed production. So, you know, that's obviously a, a big piece of the work that you do. Um, can you give me a bit of an overview of the program that you're running? Yes, we have a variety of seed orchards that we've put in over the last oh, 20 years. But the program kind of starts with progeny testing. So we'll have either customers or clients that'll we'll do seed collections. And, and oftentimes we'll go out with some of those people and help identify trees that are of interest in the wild. And that's easy with Douglas fir and noble fir because they're naturally occurring species in Oregon and Washington. So we'll identify trees in the wild that have the characteristics that we're looking for, those upright branching, lots of, lots of internodal branching, good form, good shape. The way we've typically done our progeny testing is to identify four or five growers in Oregon and Washington, and we'll spread out the progeny tests from Southern Oregon up through Washington. And the trees will be the property of the growers, and they'll treat them just like any other tree on their farm. And then we'll evaluate the progeny maybe in year four, and then we'll evaluate it just before the year of harvest. And we'll identify those individuals that have the characteristics that we're looking for. And then if we have the opportunity, we will go back and take cuttings from the parent tree in the wild. If that tree doesn't exist anymore, we'll take cuttings from the progeny. Those will be grafted into uh, seed orchards, and then we'll be kind of working on the seed orchard to produce seed for future um, Christmas trees. And we've got five different seed orchards for noble fir. We have two seed orchards now for Douglas fir. And then we're working on a seed orchard for species that aren't native to Oregon or even to the U.S. So we're looking at Nordman fir and Turkish fir and Trojan fir as being species that we have interest in for future breeding. And what traits are you prioritizing in your program? All these different traits have different levels of heritability. And of the traits that we were looking for, probably the, the, the most heritable trait would be bud break timing. So we would, we would be looking for trees that don't break bud too early in the season because they would be hit by frost. Height is a little less heritable, but it's certainly a trait that we're very interested in. The traits of disease resistance and pest resistance 
tend to be much more general. So they might, you know, be associated with that species rather than that individual family. Then, you know, color tends to be fairly heritable. So that's one that we can we can identify and and have done breeding for. And once you're finished inspecting and selecting your progeny and you know it's one you want to run with, it goes into seed production. Is that right? It's it depends a little bit on the the species and and the grower. So there's still a lot of seed that is collected out of the wild, particularly with noble and Douglas fir, more so with noble. There's still wild collections of, of seed, uh, but more and more we're, seed is being produced in seed orchards. Then with some of the unique species, the Nordman and the Turkish and the Trojan fir, we're getting more and more seed production domestically, but still the bulk of the production is imported from Georgia or Turkey or from Denmark, because Denmark's done a lot of Christmas tree breeding. And they have seed stands of Nordman and Turkish fir in Denmark, um, even though it's not a native species to Denmark or to the U.S., um, but they've been doing enough breeding work for long enough that they have seed orchards that are where we get a lot of the Oregon seed from. So when you find a family or you find a, a a particular plant that you like, you then graft that onto rootstock to create the seed orchard, and then the seeds are produced open pollinated. So you can have, in effect, clones in the seed orchard. Is that have I have I understood that correctly? Yeah, they'd be. You know, they'd be grafts from the progeny in the in the test because we can't go back to Georgia to get the parent tree. And those are clones in the orchard. And most of our orchards are open pollinated. So, you know, they'd be from the nearest neighbor that happened to have pollen. Although we have one orchard where they actually are doing, you know, pollen bags and controlled pollination. My favorite kind of seed production, of course. <laughs> that would make you very happy, yes. <laughs> Um, but mostly open pollinated. And my understanding is that the volumes of seed produced can vary quite a lot from year to year. How is that managed? I don't know if we manage it or we just accept it, especially for noble fir. So noble fir doesn't seem to have a good seed crop, but every five years or so. And it's still sort of magical and mysterious about what those conditions may be to encourage noble fir to produce cones. You know, the operating kind of hypothesis is that, you know, things that stress the tree often cause them to produce to produce seed and produce cones. So, you know, this next year might be a good seed year because we had such a horrendous drought this last year. We had a horrible seed year last year for noble fir. We've done experiments where we've done injections with gibberellic acid and girdling for noble fir, but it's less predictable on noble fir than it is with Douglas fir. The flowering process for, for all of these conifers is a two-year process. Nordman, Turkish, and Trojan fir we're learning about, but it appears that it's much more frequent flowering and cone production than certainly with noble fir. Why? I don't know. But you can store the seed, can't you? So you don't get caught out with, oh, we can't plant any Douglas fir this year because we had a dreadful harvest. Is that right? Yeah, you're exactly right. So Douglas fir and noble fir store really well for a long period of time. We have a seed that's a decade old that we're still using and it still has high viability and germination. Nordman Turkish and Trojan is a little more perishable. 
many of the nurseries won't buy seed that's more than two years old. So that's so it's it's fortuitous that it's the species tend to be more regular producers of seed and flowering um, because we just haven't figured out the strategy to store it for long periods of time. We're working on strategies of looking at different moisture contents to store it and different temperatures to store the seed at, but haven't found that magic long-term storage solution yet. I want to go back to something you mentioned briefly, which is your trip to find new genetics. I, in my naivety, assumed that Christmas trees came from somewhere like uh, Scandinavia, but you actually went to Turkey. Tell me about that. A group of us got very interested in doing more specific collections of, of Nordman and Turkish fir in 2010. And so we went to Turkey and we were looking at Turkish fir and Trojan fir. We were interested because we've known for a number of years that Nordman and Turkish fir tend to be resistant to most of our native root rot problems. And they tend to do well in fields that are poorly drained, which is common in Oregon. So we organized a collection trip where we went to three different areas where uh, Turkish fir is grown, and we went to areas where Trojan fir is grown. And the process that we used was to pick a road or a, a tract that we could follow from the lowest elevation where the species grew to the highest elevation where the road either petered out or or that species didn't grow any longer. So we collected trees at about a, every half a mile or a kilometer along the road. A couple of us would go out ahead of the cone pickers and we hired brave Turkish guys that climbed trees and you know pick cones way up in the tops of these tall, tall trees in the forests. And we'd identify the trees again that we thought looked like great candidates. You know, the first criteria was that it had cones. And the second one would be that it looked like it was a promising Christmas tree with lots of branches. The climbers didn't like the trees we picked because they had so many branches that they were hard to climb. They would pick the cones. We'd GPS each of the locations of each of the trees. We made measurements on the length of the needles, the shapes of the needles, the length of the cones, the color of the foliage, and collected DNA from each of the trees. Then the cones were processed in Turkey and shipped over here. So the seedlings were grown. The seed from the trees that we collected in Turkey were grown at a nursery down in Springfield, Oregon. And we planted progeny tests across the United States. We've already made selections that are being grafted into seed orchards. This year, the trees are being harvested as Christmas trees. It's taken a while for them to develop, but um, there's some just some really outstanding families of Christmas trees that we're looking at. What was the main driver for this expedition? What were you looking for? One of the emphasis for doing the collections was that the these species are Mediterranean, they're adapted to dry summers, and they tend to be very slow growing in their first few years, and they're growing, they're growing deep roots. During these drier, driest summers, we've had much better survival with Douglas fir and Nordman fir and Turkish fir and Trojan fir. I know you've already mentioned heat domes and drought. How is climate change affecting the Christmas tree industry? This year in Oregon, and I hope you avoided it in Great Britain, 
we had um, what, what we're commonly calling a heat dome. We had temperatures that reached 119 degrees Fahrenheit. Oof, almost 50 degrees Celsius. It's very hot. We had never experienced temperatures even remotely approaching those. And three days of that temperature, you know, the trees essentially had heat stroke. The response of the tree is to basically get it to make itself smaller. So they'll die from the top down and from, you know, the outside in. And then on top of that, we had a very dry summer. We typically have very Mediterranean summers in Oregon, even though we get a lot of rain in the winter. Often from June to late September, we won't get any rain. Combine that with three days of ungodly hot temperatures, we had a lot of mortality this year. And of the species that we commonly grow, the noble fir seedlings were the most sensitive to those two events, the heat dome and the long, hot, dry summer. So we lost, I'm estimating, 70% of the seedlings that were planted this year of noble fir. So in in eight years, we're going to see a shortage of noble fir because nurseries are, with the fires we've had in Oregon and Washington and the demand for seedlings, you just can't go out and buy another million seedlings. So we're going to see in a few years some drops in supply. Gosh, well, we heard it here first. So what's next for you? (laughs) I'm actually half retired. So my goal in life would be to find somebody that would be a replacement in the position um, that will take on a lot of the breeding work and and a lot of the research efforts that that we've been working on for 20, 30 years. So that's my hope. Our Christmas tree growers are, tend to be optimists, um, and so they're always hoping next year will be better. You know, but like a lot of farming um, across the, the world, um, a lot of the growers are getting older. So we'll hope to get some younger family members interested in others. So, um, so any any young plant breeders who are listening who think, hey, I might be interested in Christmas tree breeding, they should um, maybe make contact. Hey. <laughs> that would be great. We can get the the my bosses and you know interested in filling the position, and then we'll have people ready to go. Are there any influences you're particularly grateful for as you've been through your career? Yeah, I've had many mentors that have helped me along the way. Barney Douglas, Ken Brown, and people that came into the position before me, largely doing tree breeding, actually. You know, growers that in the case of Barney Douglas, he was very interested in in breeding Christmas trees and setting up seed orchards. And he was a grower, but he also had a passion for breeding um, blackberries. And so he developed a thornless blackberry that has, you know, gone on to some more fame than some of his Christmas tree work. It's interesting the way, you know, interests take people. And last but not least, very important question. What species of Christmas tree will you have, if any, this year? Tell me about your Christmas tree choices. (laughs) If we weren't going up to the mountains, we would have a Turkish fir from our farm. But in fact, we're going to be up at uh, our mountain cabin. And so we are going to cut down probably the top of a tree because it's already snowing. And it'll probably be a silver fir. And and that's because that's available or because that's a choice, you know, an active preference or a bit of both? A little bit of both. But the, the limiting factor is it's a mile and a half of skiing into the cabin. So we're going to not haul a tree in there. We're going to try to find one close by that we can cut down. 
So that £70 tree that you were talking about, not an option. <laughs> not going to be, not going to happen this year, that's for sure. Good. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been such a pleasure, such an interesting subject. And um, yeah, wish you a very Merry Christmas. Oh, you too. And this has been fun. You've been listening to a special seasonal edition of Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Season four will be coming to your podcast playlists in the new year. And in the meantime, have a very Merry Christmas and a happy holidays. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore int or via our website pbsinternational.com. Until next time, stay well.